This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think it's interesting that odor is one of those things in med school and in residency and medical training we don't usually spend a lot of time on and it's one of the things that is a common patient question. I think we've all as urologists had patients come into the office and say, well, my urine smells very strong. And, you know, maybe they don't have symptoms, they don't have an infection, their urine analysis is normal. And you guys just have to say to them, hey, your strong smelling urine, it doesn't matter. And, and we don't really know all the different flavors of urine odor or all the different, you know, variants of physiologic vaginal odor because it's not, doesn't fit underneath a, you know, diagnosis paradigm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ashley Winter, who's a specialist in sexual health, and Jen Anger, one of my partner, also a recognized expert in women's health and transgender care. How are you all doing this morning? Great. Good morning. It's great to see you both. Yeah, it's great to be here. This is, uh, I'm, I'm so honored to be my second time on uh, Backtable Urology. So, well, it's great. It's great. Your, your initial episodes were really awesome. Thanks for coming on. And, you know, before the show, we we're chatting a little bit. We've shared a little bit of a trajectory, all having spent some time training in New York. And now we're all here in Southern California. Well, really, really excited to have you on. And, you know, part of the genesis for this episode was Jen has actually authored, co-authored a book recently, A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor. And she was kind enough to give me a copy. It's excellent, very informative. And maybe Jen, just tell us a little bit, you know, what was the thought process between putting this book together as a resource for patients, providers, men, women? How did this all kind of come about? Well, three of us were partners, myself, Dr. Karen Eilber, and Dr. Victoria Scott. This was while we were all in Los Angeles. And as we saw patients, we would find ourselves answering a lot of questions that seem very kind of basic for us, but we realized a lot of women don't know what happens to their bodies when they go through many stages in life. For example, starting menses, having a baby. What about the aftermath of having a baby? And then menopause, and how do we manage hormones? I imagine Ashley's had similar experience as well in treating patients and seeing that they really lack the knowledge that that really is sort of basic. So I would uh, echo that. And I would also say I have the PDF version of this book from you now, and I look forward to the the full copy. But I was reading it and I was thinking to myself, this is like we as professionals should spend more time reading the professional output, the books, the articles that our colleagues do that are geared towards patients. And, you know, the reason I say that is because we rarely, once we're, you know, kind of full stream in our careers as attendings, have the opportunity to sit and watch somebody else's clinic and watch the counseling they do. And people have these pearls of wisdom and these insights, and they're very effective. But and we can glean them from, you know, publications like this, but we're not going to really glean that from things like, you know, journal articles. And so I was sitting there thinking to myself, like there was this great analogy about prolapse and curtains. And I I was like, oh, that's really good. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. I think I need to make a point of reading more books that urologists put out kind of geared towards patients. So I've got to say, I think, you know, the patient aspect is one part of it, but I think it might be assumed that as urologists that deal with sensitive parts of the body, that we're also experts in this and know a lot of it. I mean, a kind of an analogy that comes to mind is, you know, an excellent pediatrician may not be able to provide practical advice about having had a baby. How often should they be peeing and having bowel movements and diaper changes and rashes? Like there's this, a little bit of a, of a gap, I think, at our level as well. And, and I was thinking about a, you know, really funny story when I was the chief resident, there was an intern, a female intern that was on call for me and it was a difficult catheterization in a female patient. And, you know, she called me kind of dejected after 20, 30 minutes of trying. And it was a larger patient, admittedly, 
went down there to help her. And sure enough, she'd been trying to intubate the clitoris and not the urethra. And I think everybody's probably, you know, encountered like a recessed urethra or some atypical anatomy. And sometimes even just the fundamentals of anatomy can be be a little bit nuanced or challenging or unfamiliar to, you know, male urologists, female urologists, certainly for patients. So, you know, I thought that we could maybe just at a high level run through the chapters, common things that come up, maybe some funny stories if they're at the top of mind and, you know, dispel some of the myths and truths of of the women's pelvic floor. How does that sound? Sounds great. That sounds great. All right. So so the first so the first chapter I have three holes down there. So to talk to me, you know, this is the kind of lead off chapter, common question from patients. How do you kind of run through, you know, a little bit of the anatomy? You know, we, we realize that we all kind of know we have three holes, but we don't necessarily know where they are. For example, the urethra is actually kind of hidden in the front wall of the vaginal canal. So it's not that obvious that it's where it actually is located. So that chapter is really kind of the basics of a woman's anatomy. And it also includes the clitoris and and vulva or what we call external genitals. I think it, you know, it's like, it seems so basic to us, but the amount of people who think that women pee out of their vagina is like very high. (laughs) And so three holes is, you know, a very seemingly basic, but really important uh, thing to say. The other day, there was this viral TikTok about this person talking to like a high schooler and she was talking about her like front vagina and her back vagina or something like it was funny, but it was also kind of horrifying that this person who's about 16 years old, you know, thinks that they have a front vagina and a back vagina and they and they like And it was all like mangled up, right? And just such basic things like the number of holes that you have and what those things are called and the difference between a urethra and a vagina, you know, is really just fundamental and something that I think sadly is not really in basic education in schools. I mean, I would say as a, you know, as a urologist, you know, even things like the vestibule, vestibulodynia, clitoral phimosis, some of these things that occur and can have fairly dramatic impact on a patient's sexual health were not things that I were, was necessarily educated in or felt comfortable diagnosing or talking about. So I think it's great that there's been, you know, increased interest on, you know, really assessing even just visually from, from kind of the physician perspective, basic anatomy. Now, Jen, you, you talked about, you know, the kind of evolution, menses, puberty, postpartum, peripartum, menopause. And I have to imagine that that was kind of the impetus for what's happening to me. And, you know, Ashley, maybe, maybe we could start out with you. You know, what are some of the common questions you get as you know, women t- tend to age? Is this normal? I, I think is a common one, you know, or this is just part of aging. Um, you know, people expect like, right, that they're just going to have to be, let's say, leaking urine and that's normal. That's part of aging. Or they think that, you know, sex has to be painful and that's normal and that's part of aging. Or they're just not going to be interested anymore or that their sex life might go away. Right. And it's, to some extent, these things are normal in the sense that they're common, but they're not something that because they're common, you have to accept as an inevitability. So I'd say those are the most common things that kind of come up. And we have different phases in our life where, where our bodies are drastically impacted by hormonal changes. One being after having a baby, you know, your hormones plummet and it can have a lot of effects on mental health on pelvic health, and we're not really aware of those changes until they happen. And another really, I think, relevant time period, especially for me as I'm sort of getting at that age where I'm like, okay, I'm, is, it, is this a hot flash or is it really hot outside? But what I realize is as a physician who has a pretty strong knowledge base, I had to really do a lot of research, watching a lot of Ashley's work and, and that of others to find out What's the safety profile of hormone replacement? 
And, you know, some of these studies, the, the Women's Health Initiative kind of scared a lot of women away from hormones when they are in general very safe. You know, there's there's exceptions, but we realize a lot of these kind of the dangers of hormones that we learned about that made all women. I remember my mom and all her friends stopped hormones when the study came out that there was a more cardiovascular risk, more breast cancer. But when you looked at the data, that most of the kind of problematic side effects really had to do with the progesterone component of hormone replacement. And I realized as if it's so hard for me to decide, what about people who don't necessarily have a medical background? How do you make these decisions to protect your bone health, to not have hot flashes and go on hormone therapy? And so that's sort of the, 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 this um, chapter really explains sort of what happens to our hormones at these different stages in our lives. I love that you mentioned the postpartum component as somebody who is in the postpartum phase of my life. It's just wild. I mean, I woke up this morning. I was just pulling out chunks of my hair. I mean, it is. And I have a prescription. This is TMI, I guess. But I have a prescription for vaginal estrogen because I'm breastfeeding. And I was getting those symptoms like genitourinary syndrome of menopause. I was peeing and it felt like razor blades. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I need vaginal estrogen. And I knew how to advocate for myself. And I asked my obstetrician for the vaginal estrogen. But if I hadn't known, if my life wasn't all about <laughs> vaginal estrogen, I think I would have just been miserable and not known how to get help, right? Or all this misunderstanding, like people saying, oh, well, I can't use vaginal estrogen. That will mess with my breastfeeding. And you say, okay, but we take women who are breastfeeding and put them on oral contraceptive pills, right? So we're giving them a hormonal medication while they're lactating. And we know that that's safe. And yet we can't use a topical hormone for their genitourinary health. Like that doesn't, you know, that's that's not a, a true fear um, or that's not a fear based in any sort of data. So I digress, but I'm very glad that you brought up the part about postpartum. And I think something that can potentially be impacting a lot of our patients, like how often do we have a reproductive age woman who comes into a urology office and even ask them if they're la lactating, right? Right. No, I had, and, and honestly, while, while we're on the TMI topic, I had the same thing, the clumps of hair falling out. You have this great hair when you're pregnant and no one, you, have, you know, no one tells you it's going to fall out. And the same thing, my doctor's like, oh, we need to give you vaginal estrogen. And I was like, okay, right. This, and so, and the thing that, that's also really, um, I think there's also not too much information about vaginal estrogen, which has essentially no systemic absorption and no risk of breast cancer or any other gynecologic cancer at all. And I don't think there's a lot of knowledge about the fact that that's actually different than systemic hormone replacement, which is what we call like a higher level of, of estrogen. One last point about that. I think it is because vaginal estrogen is so critical for a lot of urologic complaints. I think it really is important for urologists to be educated on a basic level about what those concerns are regarding the WHI. Because if you aren't educated about that, your patients will be scared and they won't take it and you won't know how to address their questions. Even to the point, even though vaginal estrogen is so low absorption and doesn't have systemic effects, we also know that estrogen alone doesn't cause breast cancer, even if somebody was taking it systemically, right? Like we know that for a fact. So it's just so beyond safe. And I feel like that as a provider, you know, we have a kind of an understanding that the group that had estrogen and progesterone, so those are the women with a uterus, had a higher rate of breast cancer, but not in the estrogen-only group. Well, a, a per patient who is not necessarily in the medical field, you know, they don't have a, there's not a, a lot of information about, well, when do you take progesterone and when you don't. And if you have a uterus, the progesterone prevents the lining from building up because potentially when you have estrogen-only there could be a risk of endometrial cancer because of this unopposed estrogen. But what people don't know, and so many women use progesterone-eluting IUDs, intrauterine devices for birth control. A woman with a uterus can just stay on one of those, and then she's perfectly safe to take unopposed estrogen. But I feel sometimes badly like I know about that trick because I'm in healthcare. But I think a lot of women don't know about those options. Yeah, this is... Fantastic. And I think, you know, dispelling some of these essentially myths associated with hormone replacement therapy are critical. And it's really wonderful to see you all doing that. So I was going to ask, you know, if, and I'm sure some component of this takes place with any given patient's OB or any given patient's 
PCP. But if you were going to advise a person considering getting pregnant or somebody who's recently pregnant on, you know, this is kind of what you could expect from a urologic health perspective, a sexual health perspective, and maybe we'll call it a hormonal health perspective. This is kind of normal. And these are things that you may be able to do during this pretty wild, let's call it nine months of pregnancy and the subsequent year-ish afterwards. What what would that kind of counseling or, or spiel look like? Ashley, you should answer this because you you're it's very close to home for you. <laughs> Certainly, I'm not an obstetrician, so I I won't speak for, with a professional hat on regarding certain aspects of this. But um, you know, from a urologic standpoint, of course, and, and I think this is common knowledge that you're going to experience you know increased urgency and frequency and nighttime waking to void as you know your pregnancy progresses. You know, I felt like in my last trimester, I felt like all the BPH patients I had been seeing for so many years because I was just like getting up five times a night and everybody was telling me to get rest before the baby came, but I couldn't because I had to pee all the time because <laughs> because my uterus was like functioning like a giant prostate and <laughs> my bladder couldn't fill. And so that's really normal, but, but I do think people know that and expect that. And then I think really, as we were talking about before, the postpartum components are just so under-recognized. So, for example, that you'll have low estrogen, that you might have hot flashes. I mean, I have had hot flashes in my postpartum. I didn't know that was going to happen. And I'm a physician and I'm somebody who's interested in hormones and sexual health. That, again, you may experience vaginal dryness. You know, unfortunately, a lot of these things can start after six weeks the six-week point. And unfortunately, a lot of people have their six-week postpartum visit and then they're discharged from the care of their obstetrician. And so they don't really have somebody to go to for some of these for some of these questions offhand, you know, and you're like postpartum screening for depression and whatnot all takes place at the pediatrician's office, which is pretty wild. Like, I don't know. I mean, they're dealing with so much with the, with the child. Like, I don't know how they're expected to deal with me. I mean, I just wish that I had more care for myself, you know? So the vaginal dryness, the hot flashes, the hair falling out. Yeah, I think I think those are really, really common ones. And unfortunately, we as a society have this situation where if the baby's healthy, we kind of think that the mom should be happy and that's everything. And it's so important, but we're still a person too once the human comes out of us. No, I really appreciate you sharing that, Ashley, from kind of a firsthand perspective. And, um, you know, you mentioned several times it's very, it's common knowledge. I just don't know that it is. You know, if you're, let's say, 20, 22 years old and you've typically just kind of been doing your thing and all of a sudden you're you know, running to the restroom very frequently or waking up at night, maybe you think you have a UTI or, you know, maybe there's some behavioral things that you can do to mitigate some of those risk factors to get some rest, you know, fluid restriction. I don't know what's what's kind of okay and safe in pregnancy, but, you know, not not necessarily good old-fashioned allopathic medications that could have teratogenic effects, but yeah. here's a couple of practical things that you might be able to do. I'm sure that some fluid restriction, at least prior to bedtime, is good. I, I will say on that point regarding fluids, again, as somebody who's lactating, I, how, I don't know how much literature actually we have on kidney stones while breastfeeding. I know a number of people who have had them. And when I pump, I can fill up an entire, you know, like 32 ounce Nalgene bottle in a day of fluid. And I just think about like, what exactly are the fluid recommendations we should be counseling people who are lactating, you know, for their for their 24 hour urine to be accurate, right? Like, has that ever been studied? I don't even know. Yeah, that's a good point. And in pregnancy, it's particularly hard because you have urinary frequency and you have to drink. And many of us as working moms who run around, I remember in my last, with as I was getting older with my, my third child, I kept getting contractions. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do here? And I had to really cut down. I had to cut my clinic in half. It wasn't the OR because I sit with my surgeries, but running around in clinic and having to cut down my hours and, and, um, you know, these are things you don't really know about. And I remember being worried, what am I going to do if I, you know, my RVUs, many of these, uh, I think many of us are in our audience understand RVUs. 
And my partner, one of the co-authors of the book, Karen Eilber, said, well, if you're on bed rest, you're not going to get any RVUs. So I was like, okay. And I cut my hours down. And so I think we're, we're, there's not a ton of knowledge about getting contractions or needing to rest or like, like Ashley said, drinking lots of water. These are things that we kind of learn. And even when discovered I was pregnant, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I have to take vitamins. And that I knew from medical school, but I didn't know, can I have a cup of coffee? Can I have a Diet Coke? Is sushi safe in the U.S., right? And so there are all these things that you start like searching and trying to find the answers to all these different questions because there's just not a lot of common knowledge about it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, my wife's a pediatrician, but better believe it when she was pregnant with our first child, there was a lot of unknowns and, and many of these questions popped up. To Jen's point about the contractions and having to urinate, that for me was the worst part of labor was not actually contraction pain. But whenever I had a contraction, I had to urinate immediately. And when I, again, being TMI, when I got admitted to the hospital for childbirth, you know, you're attached to all the monitors on the fetus and your IV. And, you know, I had the tocin drip. And so I had a gazillion thing I was attached to. I couldn't move. And I had to urinate so badly every time I had a contraction. And I asked them for a diaper and they were like, we don't have diapers. <laughs> I was like, and then I was like, well, then can I have a catheter? And they're like, you don't have an epidural yet, so you can't have a catheter. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I was so upset. And if I could, you know, have some sort of awareness campaign, it would be to get all the, you know, birthing units in hospitals to have a diapers. Like, depends. I just, I just... Nobody talked to me about that. Like nobody, everyone's like, oh, you know, what playlist do you want to have while you're going through birth? Like what playlist? It's like, I didn't care about a playlist. Like I wanted a diaper. Like that's what I wanted. Like I just. No, I don't want to pee all over myself and I don't want to pee on my brand new baby. I mean, those are very reasonable requests. Yeah. So, and this might be a perfect segue. So it sounds like, I mean, it is. I think we all kind of recognize this in some form or fashion that pregnancy and childbirth and all that's pretty wild. So some period of pelvic rest, certainly if you've had an episiotomy or some type of more involved vaginal delivery. Let me back up. Do you all ever see patients kind of delivery to talk about what their sexual health life might look like after after they deliver? We do. We we often get the, the patients to our offices after, you know, if there's maybe an episiotomy that's not necessarily healing well. That I mean, that's a, another topic of you know, where there's not a lot of awareness. And, and we actually interviewed women who, uh, Colby Soders, who's now in Kansas, when she was a, a trainee, did this work where we talked to patients about their birth experience and also recorded their visits with their provider as they were pregnant. And there wasn't a lot of talk about, you know, you, you might have stress incontinence or pelvic prolapse down the road. And that there is an option about having a cesarean delivery. Let's say your mom had prolapse or you already have some stress incontinence. And and so there's and most women, I would say, you know, the vast majority of women, let's say 99 percent would still want to have a vaginal delivery. But I think many of them wish that they had been informed about what might happen later. Now, keep in mind, we, we see patients who have had prolapse or incontinence. So we didn't see a lot. We don't see a lot of the patients who have had no complications from delivery. I had a, a large baby who turned occiput posterior or face up. And, and because I am trained in reconstructive urology, I requested a, an elective cesarean delivery. And, and so that's what I, I did, actually. And again, one of those kind of situations where as a provider, I knew my options and that I knew I could request that. And I think most women want a vaginal del delivery, but would like to have just a little more information about what might happen before they go in. I think also to your point, you know, a cesarean section oftentimes is, is perceived as a failure rather than an option. You know, like for some people that that might be a failure, but for other people, it might be, you know, really what's right for them, um, particularly given, you know, their specific, you know, body habitus, the, ch the child's body habitus, you know, risk factors, et cetera. In terms of myself personally and, you know, seeing people for, you know, kind of counseling as to what to expect, I, I have never I have never seen anybody for counseling as to what to expect from a from a, you know, urologic or sexual health standpoint for pregnancy or, or postpartum. Again, that's because we don't really consider preventative 
sexual health care a thing. From my standpoint, we would probably consider putting all perimenopausal women or menopausal women on vaginal estrogen before they develop symptoms and not wait for them to have a whole bunch of UTIs or painful sex and see a bunch of providers to get something that's safe and effective, right? But that's not even a discussion, like to do preventative sexual health care, which is unfortunate. What I did see um, as a pregnant person in today's healthcare environment is there was a number of options for pre-birth pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, and I, I thought that was great. And I actually even did a Zoom consultation with a pelvic floor physical therapist that I'm friends with who just did kind of like a pre-birth class with me. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and I really hope that options like that continue to expand. And definitely, you know, if from with a provider hat on, I would recommend that to people who are interested because the pelvic floor physical therapist can do a lot of counseling about what to expect from like a urologic standpoint, um, you know, in terms of symptoms and also exercises, et cetera. And that can kind of take that off your plate as a urologist if that person's involved with the counseling. So, yeah, it's like you read my mind, Ashley. I mean, you know, I'm an oncologist and when patients are considering treatment options for prostate cancer, if they're steering towards prostatectomy, Five years ago, I would have been like, all right, you know, after your prostatectomy, we'll start doing kegels. Then like two years ago, it was like, you should start doing your kegels a couple of weeks before your prostatectomy. And now it's like, let's get you in to see the pelvic floor physical therapist to really dial this in before your prostatectomy. And um, it kind of makes perfectly good sense. I have to imagine for a, you know, let's just call it a healthy young person who's never really had any substantial urinary symptoms to start leaking and have stress incontinence has got to be a little bit unnerving, disconcerting. And could you maybe just talk a little bit about incidence of that? It sounds like obviously a pelvic floor physical therapy consultation would be a really proactive way to address that. But can you just briefly talk a little bit about that? So a lot of women will have stress incontinence, so leakage with cough, laugh, or sneeze in the short-term postpartum period. And some, and a pr predictor of that is actually if they leak during their pregnancy. But we actually see the average age of seeing a doctor having a sling surgery for stress incontinence is 52. And prolapse surgeries tend to be about a decade after that. So I think, like Ashley said, though, those exercises are great. One thing I, I tell women is that 50%, and these are studies that have been done in routine gynecologic offices, and found that 50% of women who are Paris, who've had babies, have prolapse that's stage two or, or less, but without any symptoms. So some degree of prolapse with delivery is actually normal. And stress incontinence is also very common. And we know that as we get older, about even half of women will have a combination of stress and or mixed urinary incontinence with urge incontinence as well. And we, um, so we start with that preventive approach like Kegel, Kegel exercises are really effective for, for mild stress incontinence and actually um, have been shown to help with mild prolapse as well. Those are really the main, I think, preventive strategies that we have. And we don't tend to say, oh, or you can have elective cesarean. And the reality is if you have three elective cesareans, you end up getting a similar risk to a woman who's had a vaginal delivery. So, um, so they're not perfect, but those are, I think, the, the main things we talk about are these things that are really going to happen down the road. So it's kind of sometimes hard to conceptualize. Most women might have some recover from any pelvic floor trauma and after their first delivery are really fine. And we, we see some of these issues later in life. So I think we've, we've gotten a decent handle or at least on some kind of level one counseling Kegel exercises if somebody's a little bit more bothered or desires to be a little bit more proactive, have them get into see their pelvic floor physical therapist with respect to stress incontinence. So prolapse, um, this is also sounds like related to, but separate from peripartum necessarily. When does this kind of come up? Is it something that's typically being picked up on routine examinations by a gynecologist, by a urologist, or is it patients' complaints that typically bring this to the forefront? Again, as, as I had mentioned that prolapse stage two, which is basically to the hymen within a centimeter of the hymen, is normal after delivery. So when a patient's referred who doesn't have symptoms, they come very scared. 
told they have a cystocele, which is the bladder falling, and um, but they don't have symptoms or they felt found it in the shower and they get very scared. And, and that's a nice opportunity for us to say, don't worry, this is normal. We don't treat, we'll keep an eye on it. But when women have symptomatic prolapse, so they feel a bulge, that really is indicative of usually a higher stage prolapse, um, two to three, and they often will need treatment. And so there's the same risk factors for prolapse exist for stress incontinence. So parity, vaginal delivery, weight of the largest baby, was it an operative delivery like forceps or vacuum, for example? Those are all these different risk factors for prolapse. But again, what's a little worrisome, um, I think, to me is that no one talks about prolapse and women who have it. And we've done this. We did this with focus groups. They, they, they tend to have a lot of shame around prolapse, which is sad to me because there should be no shame in prolapse in having a baby. And, and, and so it's a sequela of having a baby, right? But some won't even know what it is. I've had women who thought they might have cancer because there's a bulge coming out. It's, it's something that really is another kind of t- typically taboo topic that's, I think, coming onto the forefront, which, which is good. I think it's good that, we, that people can be aware about it, ab- about prolapse. So if it happens, they don't have those fears or unknowns. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all too common, right? We see men coming in with these, you know, one, two liter hydroseals or huge scrotal hernias. And when it comes to, I think our, our genitals and so forth, testis cancer patients coming in with huge masses, it's just something that you're embarrassed about seeking care. I'm sure there's some sociodemographics that could also make it a little bit more challenging to get to the doctor in a reasonable time frame. But yeah, I think also that this is normal, right? I guess it's com- it's super common and we've got ways to address it and fix it is a basic message that's that's worth sharing. Sorry, Ashley, what were you going to say? Oh, yeah. I just think about <laughs> how important this stuff is and how common it is. Uh, like when I was in my surgical ICU rotation, there was a patient who had like a pessary and the like, I, I for, they, they thought that like maybe she had an infection in her vagina because the pessary smelled weird and like the intern on the service kept like taking it out and then like the patient was bothered and then like the family member would put the pessary back in, <laughs> like you know, and you were like, why, what, how would a pessary be an issue that would come up in surgical ICU with like a critical patient? But, you know, this was something we were so ill-prepared to deal with, right? We could deal with, you know, ER thoracotomy and the people's hearts that stopped and gunshot wounds and on that rotation, all this stuff. And then there was this pessary situation and everybody's very stressed out about it. And so, and the patient wasn't septic because they had a pessary, but, you know, people like, we just didn't understand that the vagina was going to smell different with like a pessary in there. <laughs> like, it's good to talk about it because these are things that affect our patients and are, even if that's not necessarily the thing we're coming in for. Or if we're a urologist who's like, I don't do prolapse, I'm not FPMRS, but you know, maybe a patient is having recurrent UTI because they're not fully emptying their bladder because of their prolapse, right? Or you know, something. So we always have to have to keep that an under basic understanding of these things um, in the back of our mind. You know, it's interesting because we see patients who come to the office with prolapse and you talk about a pessary and you're like, it's a little donut. It's like a big diaphragm. And, and many, I'd say the majority are like, oh, OK, like, I'll try that. And they've never there's no one's talked about it. They never even heard of it. And so, again, I think getting to that point and many, and many, like you said, Ashley, like many doctors don't, you know, aren't that aware, you know, and they can stay in for three months. I mean, there's some women who change their own. They can even have leave a pessary in for sexual activity. Some choose to remove it, clean it in the shower, put it back in. But for our older women who maybe don't have great wrist dexterity or just don't want to do it, you can, we change it. We, in our office, every three months we can change a pessary. And so, I think a lot of those basic concepts, no one really knows about that. We don't talk about that. Oh, I wish every urology residency program would have like a pessary nurse come talk to the people. And just because if you don't know anything about them and one pops out of your patient, there's so many different types and some of them are huge. And then you're like, what is that? Right. And it could be, you know, a 15 minute lecture once in urology. Like we have 
how many lectures on prostate cancer? Like somebody come talk to the residents about pessaries just once. Yeah, maybe maybe the pessary nurse and the um, vacuum erection device person should team up and do a 30 minute because. Uh, yes, yes. You know, I just, again, <laughs> thinking about it when I'm talking about prostate cancer treatment and post prostatectomy ED. And I'm like, well, we've got some options here. And usually when I kind of start describing a vacuum erection device, it's kind of like jaw drop, eyes glaze. What are you talking about? Even as somebody who specializes in sexual health and does a lot of ED and implants, like patients, when I recommended a, a vacuum device for a number of reasons, you know, post-prostatectomy rehab, Peyronie's disease, you know, they all are calling the office and or in their appointments asking me how to work it. And I'm like, I don't know how to work it. Like, I don't, I have never used one. <laughs> and part of that's because they're expensive and I don't have a penis, so I'm not going to buy one and sit at home using it. But like, it would be nice if the residents had to, I don't know, got their hands on a few model vacuum erection devices and like operated it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, at least on a model or something. Yeah, I don't ma- know. Maybe a condom catheter as well. Again, I think it's just like super practical stuff that we can like talk about kind of abstractly or academically, but there's some practical implementation that might be lacking. But you'd mentioned, Ashley, um, you know, this patient of yours and, and the smell of the vagina. This is something that even myself as a oncologist, when I have female patients that have either received, you know, who knows, a nephrectomy or whatever, We'll kind of talk about odors, cleanliness, hygiene. Can we spend a couple of minutes talking about that? I think I love the the statement that the vagina is a self-cleaning oven, which is really true. It, it has the ability to clean itself. Now, certain odors can be normal, and some are indicative of maybe an infection. So we all might remember what we talk about, the whiff test in medical school, that if a woman has bacterial vaginosis with sexual activity because of that basic pH of semen, it'll cause a fishy odor with sexual activity. But that's a a treatable vaginal infection. What we see is that a vagina is not supposed to smell like roses. And I think we are getting more successful in kind of combating that old, old idea from the 70s, 80s, where you have the douches with the roses. So most of the time, and for example, certain certain things can cause an odor, so blood or old blood. So at the time of menses, that can sometimes, you know, as we know with any surgery, that blood has an odor to it, but it disappears after menses. And it's normal to have an odor after exercise. Sometimes it's referred to as like a musty odor, but I had to look up what, what that was. But, but it's normal to have different um, scents with exercise. And some women will say, you know, if I notice an odor after exercise, but that's actually really normal. It's just like where we, we have odor anywhere in our bodies with when we, you know, exercise and sweat. So I think um, it's important that certain odors are actually indicative of infection, but many are normal and disappear with kind of that time of the month. I think it's interesting that odor is one of those things in med school and in residency and medical training, we don't usually spend a lot of time on. And it's one of the things that is a common patient question. I think we've all, as urologists, had patients come into the office and say, well, my urine smells very strong. And, you know, maybe they don't have symptoms, they don't have an infection, their urine analysis is normal. And you just have to say to them, hey, your strong smelling urine, it doesn't matter. And and we don't really know all the different flavors of urine odor or all the different, you know, variants of physiologic vaginal odor, because it's not doesn't fit underneath a you know, diagnosis paradigm, but it's something people wonder about their bodies. That's so true. And and I feel badly because in our, you know, our thought processes, right? we think, well, you don't have microhematuria and there's no infection, so don't worry about it. But a patient's like, what, you know, we have to kind of say, well, maybe you can drink more water and it will, because sometimes a strong odor is related to maybe a concentrated urine, or it can be vaginal odor that they sit on the toilet and that's what they're noticing. But it's hard, you know, in our case, we're like, don't worry, you don't have you don't have microhematuria. There's no bladder cancer. But really, that's not always enough to kind of, you know, make patients feel better about it. Totally. And so I think water drinking, there's some different. um, I remember I think Kim Kardashian was talking about pineapple as something you can eat to to change your urine odor. But I don't think we have a lot of data on that, like food that might change odor one way or another. 
we do know, I mean, everyone knows asparagus definitely gives the urine an odor. So I think there is definitely a dietary component. You know, um, what, uh, two, two urologists have the, a supplement to make your ejaculate taste different. Do you, do you guys, have you heard of this one? Popstar, pineapple-based. I think they're doing really well. I agree. I'm not an expert on the studies linking pineapple to ejaculate flavor, but I think, um, you know, it, it was a very astute observation that people are interested in that <laughs> aspect of their bodily functions. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's very innovative. That's an, an innovative idea. I'm just, <laughs> I'm kind of like trying to put it outside of my brain and how those studies were conducted and um, et cetera. But uh, I know. Uh, intriguing, n- nevertheless. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So, you know, a variety of odors is typical. There may be some that are suggestive of either dehydration or potentially bacterial vaginosis. But uh, what I'm, what I'm kind of hearing is that there's an array of order, of odors. Many of them kind of context-specific post-exercise are very much normal and kind of going above and beyond with things like astringents, douches, et cetera, are probably not necessary. And I'm guessing, and you guys nearly certainly know something about this, that maintaining a healthy vagina, you know, again, vaginal estrogen could be a good option. Definitely. And and also this these ideas, I think, another myth that we hear is this idea that, you know, with women who get infections after sexual activity, which is extremely common, they often say, well, I washed before and after. I showered my boyfriend. I made him get a circumcision. All these different things. And it's not a function of being dirty. Like there's no evidence that wiping front to back, all these things that women go crazy trying to prevent. And I say my UTI patients are the cleanest women I've ever met. Like they sh- they're so hygienic. And the reality is some women are predisposed to infections. You know, I think it's sort of a, a part of it's mechanical related to sexual activity. The only real behavior that might reduce infection after UTIs is water drinking over a liter and a half a day. And that's really the only behavior. Most of what we what we know is that, you know, vaginal estrogen is very good in preventing UTIs after after menopause. Maybe, you know, some cranberry products. But this idea that hygiene or poor hygiene contributes to UTIs is really another myth out there that we try to dispel. For sure. It's so traumatizing and or stigmatizing the concept that it's this cleanliness issue. And I also think it's harmful not just on a psychological level, but when patients think that it's a hygiene issue and then they start doing things like douching and, you know, cleaning out their vagina with soap and then that disrupts their natural flora, removes the lactobacillus. And we know that the lactobacillus is actually, you know, existing in in the vagina, that that lactobacillus is actually preventative against developing infection. So they can actually through this myth that it's a cleanliness issue, create more problems and, you know, disrupt that that microbiome. So, you know, I think it's really important to be cognizant of that and kind of a screen for that when you have those patients come in. Like, you know, what are those practices? Kind of tied into this, my favorite thing about the book that was a rabbit hole I went down, I'm obsessed with vaginal estrogen. As I mentioned <laughs> earlier, we know that vaginal estrogen can prevent UTIs in menopause and perimenopause um, if that, you know, if estrogen levels are going down. But there was a study that you guys cited that was published in European Urology in 2005 showing that in women who were in their early 20s on combined oral contraceptive pills, that using a four-week course of vaginal estrogen actually broke the cycle of cystitis. And they most of them remained UTI-free a year after the study. And not only that, but they correlated it with cystostopic findings that we know are associated with low estrogen levels, uh, such as you know tr- metaplasia at the trigone, and showed that on oral contraceptive pills, these 22-year-olds had you know metaplasia at the trigone, and then they used vaginal estrogen, and there was a durable response of kind of normalization of the urothelium at the trigone. So. I, I just thought that was fascinating because I do, even as somebody who liberally prescribes vaginal estrogen, you know, I, I think of it as postpartum. I think of it as a medication for perimenopause. I think of it as a medication for menopause. But we also know that extremely low dose combined oral contraceptives 
can lead to a low estrogen state. Also, you know, there can be other hormonal consequences from those medications, um, such as an antiandrogenic progesterones, and that, you know, we can even think with a hormonal hat on when we're seeing these young patients with recurrent UTIs. So I, I know that's probably like that's an older study. And I know that's not something that I had ever really thought to do. But now I'm going to to consider that in my practice because it's such a low risk intervention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I, you know, I actually recently had a young patient who had hematuria from fairly substantial trigonitis. And I was kind of a bit of a head scratcher and was thinking if this is recurrent and bothersome and problematic, you know, maybe I should fulgurate the areas of concern, but maybe I can take a little bit more of a graduated non-invasive stepwise approach and try a couple weeks of um, estrogen. So I appreciate that. And I think it, again, goes to show that, you know, these issues really are pervasive across urology and not just limited to sexual health or FPMRS. I think we've done a good job kind of at least at a superficial tip of the iceberg le level touching base on some of the topics that you cover in your book, Jen. Um, another big one that I think is big business, vaginal health, vaginal rejuvenation. I have to imagine that this is something that comes across your desk not infrequently. Can you talk a little bit about, about your thoughts on normal vaginal health? I think safe to say that vaginal estrogen can absolutely be a key component of that, but other things that patients can do, and then maybe a brief commentary on some of the devices, procedures, et cetera, that are out there? That's a great question. And and my partners and I, the, my co-authors had done a study when we were working together where we inquired with providers about what is vaginal rejuvenation to you. And sort of the more doctors that are, let's see, FPMRS trained, have sort of a deeper understanding. It can actually be it's a term that's kind of used for a few different things. So one is um, that the vaginal lining. So we have like lasers that like carbon dioxide um, fractionated lasers can really help with the lining. For women who just don't want to use estrogen, maybe they have a reaction to it. Maybe they're just really not comfortable with it. They can have a laser treatment three times in a row, six weeks apart, and that should last for about a year. But that's really what lasers do is help the lining, kind of the same with uh, lasers on the face. The true vaginal rejuve is, you know, reconstruction. So if someone has, let's say, prolapse or they feel like they have a wide genital hiatus from vaginal delivery, they can have a reconstruction, which is simply a rectocele with perineorphy to reconstruct the inside. And then another element of rejuvenation is, you know, cosmetic labiaplasty. And so there are kind of these um, many different treatments are kind of lumped in this concept of rejuvenation. And so I think even just having an understanding of what is it that we're actually trying to fix? Because what we have is this phenomenon where once a provider has a laser, they can market it for lots of different things. And so you see these lasers marketed for tightening, for stress incontinence. Really, the the what we know is that these lasers will help the lining by, again, sort of like having the effect of making the lining a little healthier. But we don't have much data other than really a, a lining procedure, again, similar to what we do in dermatology for our face. Ashley, do you have any thoughts on rejuve? <laughs> no, uh, you said it perfectly. I, I think it gets either a lot of um, exuberance or a lot of kind of ire, but it really is a lot of different things. And when you're talking about, you know, functional procedures related to the vagina that improve your quality of life, like a, you know, a prolapse repair, you know, there's excellent data that, you know, that's something important for somebody to do. Conversely, you know, if you're going to somebody who has, let's say, no fellowship, training or no urologic training and they have like a radio frequency device and they're telling you to make yourself tighter so your husband will still love you, you know, that's bad. And also, as you were saying, this the fractionated, you know, CO2 devices have data to support them improving the vaginal lining. Uh, there are other devices, you know, that that are less helpful. And yeah, so I think we just have to be cognizant that it's many different things. And when somebody says, you know, they're interested in vaginal rejuvenation, really like drill down on, 
what that means and what their specific concerns are and, you know, offer them evidence-based stepwise approaches to that. So, I mean, again, I think the parallels between, say, for instance, testosterone replacement therapy, where it should be done properly with the appropriate monitoring for the appropriate symptoms and laboratory values kind of resonates here that if you're going to do it, do it properly. It may not be you know, there's nuances here. There's patient-specific considerations and, and not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. Well, um, you know, this has been an awesome conversation and, a, and I want to be respectful of the fact that it looks like Jen's heading to clinic, as am I, as is probably Ashley. Any kind of parting thoughts as we come in an hour? I feel like I could keep on talking about this. It's been very, very educational for me, Ashley, Jen, as we, as we wrap up. I just want to thank you, Aditya. I think your interest in seeing men who are interested in learning about women's health really, really advances our field across the board. And, and I, I really want to thank you for bringing us on here so we can talk about these, what, I, what have typically been taboo topics for so many years. My parting words are one, thank you for writing that book. I am not a spokesperson for your book, but I thought it was great. And, and other people should consider reading it, other urologists, because it helps us counsel our patients and be better doctors. And my other point is just that no matter what we do as urologists, these concepts make our lives easier as clinicians, right? Like if we understand the value of vaginal estrogen, right? Like Aditya, you know, your ability to do a trial of estrogen on your patient may be prevented, you know, doing this fulguration. Like it may be, and I think this came up last time I was on Backtable, you know, if you have a patient and you're trying to do a course of BCG, they keep getting UTIs. Giving them vaginal estrogen may help break that cycle of UTIs and help you give their BCG, <laughs> give them their BCG. So just really like none of this stuff is just so essential. It makes our lives easier as urologists. And it's not like we should compartmentalize it all the time, right? You don't have to be the specialist in FPMRS, but if you have basic understanding of some of these tools, you'll be a better urologist. So um, that's my my other thing. Yeah, I love that. Something's better than nothing. And if you don't ask the questions, you're never going to find out. And what may be important to a patient is so easy for us to trivialize, like frequency urgency during BCG. And I've been doing it. And Matt, your incoming fellow is, is going to be studying this along with microbiome. So I'm super thrilled about that. Well, hey, Ashley, Jen, thanks again for your time. It was, it was awesome. Check it out, A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor. It's available on Amazon and, and all the kind of major media outlets. Y'all have a wonderful day and thank you again. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.